Father, we do want that ancient book, the scriptures in our hands, to challenge us, to change us, to equip us, to encourage us. Please take the word of God through the Holy Spirit of God and do a work in our church this morning, we pray. We think of Pastor Mark ministering at Bakerton Bible Church in this hour as well. Please bless and use him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. As you position yourselves, why don't you ask yourself this question? If you could have lived in any other era or lived in another time and a place, what would that be? I think where my mind goes immediately is is to trekking through the ever-expanding settlement of the frontier with guys like D. Boone, who killed a bar in this tree. Maybe to be with Lewis and Clark on their great expedition looking for uh, inner water passage from coast to coast. But I have to tell you that uh, in my spirit I was stirred as I studied Acts chapter 3, and I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles with me, that surely one of the most exciting times to have lived would have been either to be able to observe the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus for those three years filled with his marvelous, miraculous work of healing the lame, making the blind to see, raising the dead even. Um, But closely related to that would be to be in that Jerusalem church. The day of Pentecost has occurred. The Holy Spirit has filled them Marvelous signs and wonders are being done by the apostles. And as we move from that first day of the first church, and remember there's only one church at this time, the Jerusalem church. The planting, church planting movement hasn't begun. The gospel of Jesus Christ, confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, pronounced and proclaimed by the apostles of Jesus Christ, has not spread yet. It is very very focused, very localized in Jerusalem. And we've just finished chapter 2 of Acts where we, uh, where we read about the very first day of the church. And then we recognize that a number of things begin to happen. The church begins to grow. That's what we talked about last week, where even daily people were being saved and added onto the church. There were 3,000 on the very first day of the church. And one of the things, if you let your eyes go up into chapter 2 to verse 43, we saw last week that even though they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread in communion, in prayer, in worship, they also broke bread together at one another's homes and tables. They shared hospitality with one another. They even sold their goods as needed to help those among them who were less fortunate. It says in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Well, today, as we move into chapter 3, we're going to see immediately one of those most awesome, incredible moments where Peter is going to heal a lame man. We're going to use as our text today the first 16 verses. I need to warn you up front that our message today is much more practical than it is theological. Uh, We will take a closer look at Peter's sermon that we're going to only get into the introduction of today. But I want us to look at this story. I've entitled our sermon, Marketplace Christianity. Because you need to realize as we read the text today that what's happening is not happening on the Lord's day. It's just an ordinary day while people are about their work. God does a work. 
I was stirred by that, and I want to challenge our church about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And what does our marketplace faith look like? Let's read the text. Um, let, me, let me say that when we begin in chapter 3, we're not going to finish this in 16 verses. In fact, this healing of the lame man is is somewhat of a pivotal point in the early church. We don't know exactly how long they've gone here, breaking bread, sharing together, adding daily to their church with conversions and people repenting and being baptized. Days, weeks, months. This is an exciting time for the church, but it doesn't hold up. And this is the beginning of the end, really. Uh, This wonderful miracle that Peter is going to perform to help this pitiful man out is going to trigger actual opposition. In fact, by nightfall on this day in chapter 3, Peter and John will be imprisoned. We're not going to get to that today. But this is really the marking of the beginning of opposition to the gospel. So far, they're wide open in the community, worshiping at the temple daily, enjoying one another's fellowship. All of that is going to begin to change slowly at first, more rapidly and extremely as the weeks and months go by in the chronological history of the early church. Let's read our text. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the first 16 verses of chapter 3 of Acts. It will be on the screen if you want to follow along or in your own copy of God's Word. Now, Peter and John often named together, Peter and John, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That would be three o'clock in the afternoon. doesn't appear to be the Lord's day. It's just a normal day. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask for alms or money of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John... All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. 
And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? What a moment, what a story, what tremendous resurrection power on display. What I'd like us to do is to really just break down the text, just make sure we know what's there, and then I simply want to challenge our church, myself included, with some application that we draw from this story that happened in the marketplace, really in the temple place, but in day-to-day living. The first thing we see is the main character. Uh, You could argue that he's the main character. It's this pitiful man, this pitiful man. We don't know a lot about him. Uh, Luke, the historian, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us just enough detail uh, to to imagine a few things about him that are quite accurate. Uh, The first thing that he tells us is that the man was lame from birth. He was lame from birth. We also know that he is quite helpless because he was being carried. And we also know that he did that daily. So this was his normal routine. I think it was when I saw that daily that it began to trigger in my mind, this message began to unfold. And there he was at a familiar place at a familiar time, three o'clock in the afternoon, at the gate beautiful. Archaeologists and Bible Historians don't know exactly which gate of the temple that is. They believe they know what gate it is. It was uh, likely a certain gate that was covered with Corinthian copper, and when the sun reflected against it, I think that Josephus, the historian, talked about that. It was beautiful, and it reflected beautifully. And so it was known as the beautiful gate, entering there into Solomon's portico, an area where even the believers had not detached themselves from temple worship completely yet. They evidently met regularly there. And all week long, you could find people gathering there as described in the verses at the end of chapter 2 and hear Peter and John on a normal day, evidently having some free time at 3 o'clock, a time scheduled for prayer. They made it a point that they were entering the temple. Here we encounter this lame man. I think that it's pretty obvious that he was good at what he did because he picked just the right place, this gate where people are entering the temple to worship, a time where people are vulnerable, you know, in their flesh. People want somehow to please God, and they have a pocket full of money to put in the offering plate. And and so he knew that, and he could rattle his can and cry for alms, alms for the lame. And people also uh, enjoy trying to impress God while they impress other people with their giving and would clank coins in his box or can or bag, making sure that They did their religious deed thinking somehow that they were more spiritual because of that. One of the great deceptions of Satan and of the flesh is that somehow my good deeds can can impress God enough to provide some grace in my life. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but here they are on a normal day, a normal routine. It's interesting that when Peter heals him and grabs him by the hand and picks him up, that Luke, the physician and historian, records, interestingly enough for us, um, in verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up. We'll jump ahead in the story. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. It's not obvious in the English, but in the Greek text, that idea of feet and ankles being made strong is the idea of, of joints out of socket being put back in socket. So we don't know clearly... The text says that he was born, I think it's, I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the purpose of this occasion, 
it was important that it was somebody who everyone knew his entire life was lame. In fact, it's interesting to flip the page and go to 422, and there it says, for the man of whom this sign of healing was performed, talking about our lame man, this pitiful man, 422, they're still talking about him all through chapter 4 because it causes controversy. For the man of whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Everybody knew about him. Everybody had seen him. He was a familiar scene. Now think about that for just a minute. That triggers the imagination because if he's more than 40 years old, a few days after Pentecost, that means that he was 8, 9, or 10 years old when Jesus was born, 8 years old or so when Jesus was born. Could it be that this man had seen Jesus on this same entryway? Jesus went to the temple. Could it be that he had beggar buddies who Jesus had healed? Somewhere along the line, could it be that this man in his own voice, his voice had approached the ears of our Lord? Jesus of Nazareth, heal me! You know, Jesus didn't heal everyone. Jesus didn't raise all the dead. In his sovereign design, this man is left unhealed. We don't know if he encountered Jesus. We don't know if he recognized Peter and John. I mean, based upon the text, it seems that this was routine. That this was something that Peter and John did fairly regularly. Couldn't it be that Peter and John had regularly passed this very same beggar? Could it be that when he sees Peter and John, it says that he called out to them, that the reason he did that was to make sure they didn't get by because they were regular givers. I mean, he knew how to do it. He knew how to contort his face, throw a little dust on his clothes, make sure that his lower extremities were uncovered, and there those little distorted, these distorted, disfigured feet of his that probably never grew normally. This is a pitiful man. And we know, first of all, that he was lame from birth. And we know that he was a beggar from the text. So it paints a picture, doesn't it? I mean, the midwives had held that baby and showed him to his mommy. And as they looked that child over, as they would do, evidently from birth, those little feet were not socketed correctly. Maybe ligaments not attached correctly. Some kind of birth defect. Very important to our story that everyone knew this guy. That everyone knew. You could document that this guy was lame. In fact, even those who were against Peter and John, uh, the next day, as they call a council, will confer with one another. And in verse 16 of chapter 4, look at this. It'll, they say there, a notable sign has been performed through them, talking about Peter and John, and it is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But they certainly didn't want the gospel to spread. But for our story today, we recognize that this man is positioned to be a living illustration of the power of the resurrection power and gospel of Jesus Christ in his moment of need. And no one could refute it. So we have this pitiful man. We now have that most powerful moment. We've read the text already. Seeing Peter and John, verse 3, he does what? He looks at them and asks, calls out for alms entering the temple as they enter the temple. 
He asked them to receive. We don't know if they had given before. Perhaps they had. And Peter directed, verse 4, his gaze at him as as did John. So they evidently stopped. They turned. They looked at him, which signaled to him what? That they were going to give. And you know how it is when someone's holding a sign by a traffic light? Kind of makes you a little bit uncomfortable, especially if they're like right here and you ended up positioned right next to them, you know, and you're like, okay. And if you're going to give, what do you do? You roll down your window and you look at him. You give him a buck, you're going to give him a burger. But if you're not going to give, you don't make eye contact, do you? You look away. And so this man calls out for alms. Peter and John stop, and they gaze at one another. They look. And Peter reinforces that even and says, look at me. Surely the man thought he was going to get some money in his can. All right? His box. But Peter says something that is most interesting. He said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, verse 5, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I do have I give you. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He grabs him by the hand, pulls him up, and what does the man do? The man, leaping up, stood, began to walk, entered the temple with them. So he goes into into the area there by Solomon's gate, colonnade, by the beautiful gate. All the people saw him, the believers, the Judaizers, the community, Praising God, walking and jumping around. I guess so. So now we move from number one, a pitiful man, through the powerful moment, to a praise-filled man. I mean, instantly, in the power of Christ, his sockets were healed, his ligaments, muscles, tissue, everything was restored, replaced. Instantly. This was no televangelist trying to create some moment. This is the real deal. And the power that the apostles had to authenticate the message, to authenticate themselves as being with Christ, to help draw a crowd that Peter preaches every time. People are saved. It documents who these guys are. They are the real deal. And we know so because he's over 40 years old and he's been lame his entire life. And we know the whole community knew who this guy was. And he's, wouldn't you love to see that? He's jumping and dancing and he never felt his feet move before. He never flexed his ankles before. It's just an incredible praise-filled moment. Well, what happens as he enters the, the beautiful gate into the temple, everybody's filled with awe amazement and wonder. And he clings to Peter and John, verse 11. Everybody is, look at the phrase, utterly astounded. They run together to them. They see the ruckus. They see a 40-year-old man that they actually recognize dancing around, praising God. And immediately a crowd gathers and Peter can't resist. Preacher sees a crowd. He's going to take an offering and preach. I don't think he takes an offering, but he begins to preach. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? So notice what Peter does in his message. There's the attention grabber, a healed guy. Everybody's there. He asks a question for his opening. Why are you staring at us as though... We had power or piety, some goodness in us, 
that we could make this happen. The first thing Peter does is he takes no credit for the healing. He deflects, he deflects the moment away from personal attention. Verse 16, look what he says. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong. He's talking about Jesus. He deflects attention away from him. And secondly, he lifts up Christ. He says in verse 13, it was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, which all of the Jews in the temple court, that's their God. He said, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus and in all directness, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. They knew exactly what he was talking about. When Pilate had decided to release him. You scream for a murderer. And look what they did. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised up from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see, he deflects the attention away from himself. You think I have the power to do that? I can't do that. You think I have some piety, some magic potion in me and my goodness? No. But this Jesus, by the way, whom you crucified when Pilate was ready to release him, you screamed for a murderer. And by the way, one little Bible study emphasis would be for you to take a pen and to circle. There's at least five different names that Peter addresses Jesus by in that short little text. Not only that, in verse 16, he does what? He affirms the faith of the beggar. He affirms the faith of the beggar. So he has deflected the attention on himself, Peter and John have. They have elevated Christ. I started with the Alistair Begg story last week. And an Alistair Begg quote comes to my mind that I've heard him at pastor's conference say many times in addressing preachers and exhorting preachers. He reminds us that it is impossible to simultaneously elevate yourself and Jesus Christ. You cannot exalt yourself and Jesus Christ simultaneously. So Peter, Peter was all about Jesus, and he, def, he deflects it, and then he affirms the faith of the beggar. So this is what makes me wonder if that man had an understanding of who Jesus was. Had that man actually seen Jesus heal? Had that man longed for Jesus to pay attention to him like maybe he had some of his beggar buddies who were impaired or blind? We don't know. The Holy Spirit somehow turned the lights on. And when Peter looked at the guy, the Spirit of God began to work in him. But notice, you have to argue that Peter is emphasizing the fact that it was by his name, that's Jesus, verse 16, by faith in his name, Jesus has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Is Peter talking about his own faith in Jesus? Is he talking about the faith of the beggar in Jesus? Yes, I think he is. And so he's emphasizing the fact that This moment of this man's freedom from bondage comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Alone. 
So there's our story. You understand it. I was just struck, though, about the ordinariness of this day and the extraordinary results of what happened on this day when Jesus was lifted up to this needy person. And the phrase marketplace Christianity came to my mind. You see, the first thing we need to recognize is that God is often at work outside of the scheduled services of the church. Do you realize that? God is at work in your life. He's at work in people's lives in ways that happen Monday through Saturday. They don't happen here, and they're not in our bulletin, nor could they be. Because, you see, every day, what do we encounter as we go to work? Every day, we encounter people, and we need to recognize that needy, we need to recognize needy and broken people around us. Now, let me caution you that looks can deceive in our culture. And I'm actually don't primarily or necessarily have in mind a a guy who's maybe not dressed real well or with very clean teeth or who hasn't had a shower in a while holding a sign next to a traffic signal where he hopes that some people will drop some coins or a buck or two. Uh, That guy's included, don't get me wrong. But I think that what I want to call our attention to is the fact that every day we are around needy people. Now, they might own a bass boat, a super-duty pickup truck, go on vacation to the Bahamas once in a while, have a nicer deer rifle than we have. Just because they're dressed up well doesn't mean that people aren't very, very needy. Let's continue to build our argument here. We must recognize needy and broken people around us recognizing that looks are deceptive. I got out of the story that Peter and John didn't really plan this, and I think that what we need to understand about our influence in the marketplace is that often our greatest opportunities to impact lives for Christ are unscheduled and unexpected. They are unscheduled and unexpected. I don't think that Peter had this on his calendar in his phone. I don't think that Peter knew before he left home that they were wherever they came from to go pray at 3 o'clock that they were going to encounter an individual of tremendous need. It just happened, and it happens every day, doesn't it? What I think is interesting in the story is that the man thought that his greatest need was alms in his collection box. You see, what we need to understand is often in these unexpected, unscheduled encounters with very needy people is that most often needy people have no understanding of their greatest need and they actually have no expectation then of being delivered from their greatest need. This guy sitting in the dirt next to the temple gate, beautiful, had no idea when he woke up that morning and when the guys carried him in that that day would be the life-changing day of his life, most important day of his life. He's going to have an encounter through faith with Jesus through the apostles that was going to heal him physically and spiritually, I believe. But he didn't know it, nor did he expect it. And when he was placed there at the beautiful gate, he never dreamed that anybody could ever take care of his ankles. So Peter looks at him. He thinks, I need money today, man. I need money for my family. I don't like to go to bed Without eating, he had probably done that many times in his lifetime. 
I need some money today so I can buy bread, so I can take care of myself at some mean level. He had no expectation. Peter looks at him and says, pal, I have no money for you. And he says, what I do have, I want to give you. You see, people, number five, will rarely know that you have what they need. You have to tell them. You're at the office or you're in the cafeteria or you're standing in a line and, or you're uh, on a on a a train heading into work or wherever you encounter people at a ball game, at, at little league practice, soccer practice, the water fountain at the office. Often the person that's next to you has no idea that you actually have what will address their greatest need. The hard part is they don't even care. They don't even care. They don't expect their lives to change, really. They think they need more money, like the beggar. They don't know that they don't need more money. They actually need Jesus Christ to transform their life. Okay? And you know Jesus. You have the pearl of great price with you, right there. And you could share the pearl of great price with them that you've traded everything for because this is of more value than anything you ever had. They don't know. They don't care. Might even be critical of you, but they won't know if you don't tell them. Number six, an unwillingness to stop and talk is often why we miss our greatest moments of influence. I don't know if it's busyness, distraction, insecurity, but if you don't talk, they cannot ever hear about what you have for them. Now, there's a, an ancient church father that gets quoted. He's even on bumper stickers that says something about preach the gospel, use words when necessary. I want to tell you something. Nobody ever got saved without words. They can watch your life, and it's a good thing to live out the gospel. It's a good thing to live like Christ. It can open doors. Nobody can ever understand what their greatest need is or understand who it is that they need as Lord and Savior of their life if you don't use words. So you got to stop and talk. That's kind of a hard part. For one thing, we're a little bit insecure. So let's just talk about how we're going to do this. Closely related, number seven, is that we have to be willing to name the name of Christ. If you're unwilling to name the name of Christ publicly, you will never do this. Let me tell you about Jesus. So here's at least three things out of our text box that I want to remind you of. Number one, you have to fill in the blank, so just listen. You better begin with a heart of compassion and love for needy people, whatever they look like. And you know as well as I know that we live in a world that is packed with needy people, most of whom don't care that you know what their greatest need is but they will never know if we don't talk to them. And one of the first steps we have to take is to soften our hearts towards stupid people. If that guy would have obeyed his teacher, obeyed the cops, obeyed his parents, obeyed his pastor, he wouldn't be begging on a street corner somewhere. 
He wouldn't have half his brain cells burn out by now. How stupid can you get? You got to knock that off. You got to knock it off. The fact of the matter is, he's there. The fact of the matter is, it's only by the grace of God that you're not there. There's not stupid people, there's sinful people. And that is what sin does. But I want to tell you, the guy with the super duty truck, the bass boat, and the Bahamas vacation, and the cool shoes that he wears with cool socks, he's no better off than that guy. If he doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, what good is it? Jesus asked, if we gain the whole world, but lose our soul. What good is it? See. So number one, we got to change our attitude. We're not arrogant. You can come across arrogant saying that we know what everybody needs. The only reason I say that is because the Bible says so. I read the Bible, so I know. Number two, you better have some scripture verses tucked away in your noggin. Better memorize some verses. Start with the Romans road. I've given you basically the Romans road there. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I'm going to give you credit for knowing John 3, 16. Be good for you to know John 3, 14 to 17. John 3, 36. 1 John 1, 9. So you better have some verses that you know and are conversant with. And then thirdly, You need to have some level of confidence that you know how to walk somebody through God's plan of salvation so that you can lead them to the foot of the cross in their greatest, the point of their greatest need where they can lay down their sinfulness and they can repent of that sin and admit that sinfulness and Jesus can wash away their sin, so to speak, with the blood, his shed blood, where he pays the penalty for our sin, something we can't do for ourselves except with eternal damnation. Who wants that? You can pay for your own sin, but the Bible says it's an eternal damnation. But Christ interrupts it, goes to the cross, is condemned to death, and it gets credited to our account. When we confess him as our Lord and Savior, we admit our sinfulness, we ask God to forgive us of our sin in Christ. I think I already told you the story about June when I was home, one of my high school buddies. He's a former police officer. I've talked about him several times through the years. I love him dearly, and I'm so thankful that through the years, somehow we just keep, uh, we go for years without talking, and then we pick up right where we left off, and he's a tough guy, he's got a foul mouth, he pretty much can make the drill sergeants at Paris Island look like Sunday school teachers with the way he talks. He loves to do that in my face because I'm a pastor, and he thinks that's hilarious, he told me he's going to come interrupt our service some Sunday morning and tell you all what a, an idiot I am, but he just loves to talk like that. I, lo- I, w- I long for the day when he comes to see me. He's supposed to. And I went to Kalamazoo to move my brother, who was heading to South Carolina finally, and, and I needed to pack my brother's $50,000 Steinway grand piano, and I was all alone, and so I called up my high school buddy and I said, I'll buy you breakfast. Come help me take this piano apart and wrap it and get it on the dolly carts and get it on the truck. All right, I'll come. And so we sit at the table. We eat breakfast. We catch up. We hadn't seen each other. And I had prayed about this moment ahead of time and thought it through. 
And the time came where I had the moment. I said, before we go, man, I got to talk to you. I took my napkin and I laid it out and I, I drew a cliff and I drew a cliff with a, gall, a gap and I, I wrote the word sin and I walked him through the gospel and I had us on one cliff. I had God on the other cliff and I, I had little arrows dropping down into the gulf of sin and destruction because there's nothing we can do to leap far enough to get to God that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And then I got to the part where I could explain that God loves us and he sent his only son to us. And he, he, I, lay, I drew the cross on the napkin across the gulf and I talked about how we can't get to God on our own, but God comes to us in Christ. All we have to do is accept it by faith. And I went to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And I was writing these verses on the napkin because I wanted to, him to take the napkin. He sat very quietly and, he watched. He took it all in. He was very respectful. I took probably 10, 10, 15 minutes doing this. We got done, and he, he might have sworn again. I can't remember. He, he really likes to do that to me. And he said, I don't think I ever told you that when I was eight years old, I went to church camp, and I did exactly what you just said. Put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's always been sensitive towards the Lord. He's always told me that he believes, but he's never told me that story. And I said, no, you never told me that. He said, what you just said, though, it really helps me understand exactly what I believe. I hope to continue to follow up with him in the future. Could you do that? If you get a chance to talk and you get a chance to show somebody what their greatest problem is, and you have a chance to give them what they need more than anything else in the world, can you take your pen and a piece of paper, and that's one of about three different mechanisms that I use. Now, if you can't, it's likely shame on me. And we ought to have some opportunities where we just gather, eat some pizza, and then we sit around a room practicing doing that with one another, right? And we'll try to make that happen. But here we are. You need to remember, see, finally, that People's greatest need, it's not physical, but it's spiritual. And I just love that when Peter says, I don't have any money, pal. I have no money. But what I have, I'm going to give you. And the guy had no idea it was the greatest moment of his life. There's a lot of needy people who don't know that they're a prayer away from the greatest moment of their lives. People need Christ. I want to tell you, we live in exciting days. We are seeing the plan prophesied in Scripture. The stage is being set for the last days. There's no doubt in my mind about it. We're upset about it, but we need to hold on and enjoy the ride a little bit here and say, wow, this is exciting. God is at work. And I want to tell you, people are as needy as they've ever been right now. People know they don't have answers. You'll never reach them if you don't talk to them. Will you stand with me and bow your head, please? Keep listening closely. I'm going to talk to two groups of people. First group of people I want to talk to is someone who's sitting here and you say, you know what? I don't know Jesus Christ as my Savior. Listen, it's on you. I can't do this for you. 
The Bible says that it is by faith, that is believing and trusting the message of Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What goes on in that moment of belief is is an admission of our sin. Sometimes we call that repentance. You admit your sinfulness, you repent of your sin. That's agreeing with God, yes, I'm a sinner. You admit your sinfulness and you, you recognize that Jesus Christ because God loved us so much, sent his son Jesus Christ to put on a human body, God in the flesh, to go to the cross, the only one who is qualified to carry our sin. We look back 2,000 years. He loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that then whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then... There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's the beginning of a new work. It's a spiritual thing. It, it can only happen by faith, by believing. It's, it's invisible. You believe the word of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he carried your sin to the cross and that it was for you. You, you count on that being good for you. And you tell God that. I'm going to linger at the end of the service down front here, and I have to go teach over at the modular, but I'll linger long enough that anybody wants to stay. I'm glad to talk to you. You need help with this or want to pray. I want to talk to the rest of us now. Some of us have been silent long enough. Some of us need to get to a place where we confess before the Lord our bad attitude about sinful people. You hear me say it often. Birds fly, fish swim, dogs bark, and sinners sin. We've got to change our attitude towards sinners. The sin makes us sick, but we need to be broken for these sinners that God loved enough to send his son to die for. And we have to remember we have the pearl of great price. We have what they want. They don't know they want it. They can never understand that if we don't talk to them. You've got to use words. So who is it that God might put on your heart maybe every day of the week you've been walking right past them? Or maybe in your distraction and in the unexpected, unscheduled moments, you miss a few minutes where you can stop and begin a conversation. Will you ask God, as I will, that he would begin a new work in us representing Christ well. We have this wonderful Lord Jesus. Let's share him. It's the greatest need of the world today. So Father, help us, encourage us, strengthen us, help us never to be embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this great story where just incidentally it seemed what we know ordained and orchestrated by your sovereign hand, a marvelous thing happened in this beggar's life. He met Jesus through Peter and John. Father, would you give us the privilege this week of introducing people to Jesus, the answer to their greatest sin problem that they ever had. We need your help. We ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us, help us to do our part. We know you'll do your part. Cover us now as we go. Bless us. May your face shine upon us. Keep us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you go. The chairs do need stacked. And then anybody that's staying from uh, Modular E, 
uh, needs set up. I hope it's set up. I forgot to remind the guys. Um, so, okay, James says it is set up. Thank you. I'll be there directly. Thank you.